I feel like I'm back home 26 years to the day since we arrived on these shores, since uh, we have only three seasons in India, hot, hotter and hottest, and I feel very much at home, but no, that's not true really, we've gotten lazy and we've gotten used to it. So welcome to another class of How to Grow, it's a delight for me to partner with uh, Christine and Greg here as we grow together. And I told Christian and Greg that uh, sometimes, or many times, I find that uh, the class that is allotted to me is right where I need to be growing. So this has been a physician heal thyself mode for me. So I had a pop quiz that I wanted to start off the class with, a real simple question. If I asked you guys, what was the color of Napoleon's white horse? That's right, straightforward, right? How about the next question, which is, or should be as straightforward, what day of the day, what day of the week do you worship? That's a little tricky. You would be right. <laughs> but let's go ahead and turn. If you have your Bibles, I want to start us off by looking at God's Word from Psalm 95, because I think it's a good introduction to our class today, which is, what is worship, and all of life is worship, is part of our How to Grow series. These classes are in bulk adapted from the core seminars of How to Grow, which Capitol Hill Baptist Church put out, although this particular class also has input from several people like Tim Keller. So let's turn in our Bibles to Psalm 95, and I'll just go ahead and read a few verses, and then we will seek the Lord as we begin our time together. And if you have one of the Bibles which has headings for each psalm, you will notice that Psalm 95 begins with a heading, a call to worship and obedience. And in the Latin version which we had in our growing up years, it had this title which was the first word of this particular psalm, is it, Venite, come, O come, let us sing to the Lord, let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. For the Lord is the great God and the great King above all gods. In his hand are the deep places of the earth. The heights of the hills are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for... He is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me, they tried me, though they saw my work. For forty years I was grieved with that generation, and said, It is a people who go astray in their hearts, and they do not know my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Let's look to the Lord of the Word to bless our time together. Again, our Father and our God, we stand on holy ground as we approach your Word. Beyond the sacred pages, Lord, we seek you. So, Lord, as we seek your Word, we pray that you would teach us through your Word what it means to truly worship you so that we may have a life-changing, transforming encounter with the risen Christ. For in his name we pray with thanksgiving. As we were talking about growth, one of the 
dangers that I have is to merely give you information, but as you heard me praying, my hope is that we might meet the risen Lord in his word, not just with information, but with that which transforms. The goal of this class is not merely, on any class that we are doing, is not merely to transmit information, but that the Lord may use his word and the power of the word would so transform us by his spirit so that we might become truly his children, made like him in his character. So one of the things that we are talking about today is worship. So Bob Dylan sang that famous song, You Gotta Serve Somebody. So first we will give an outline of what our class is going to be, and then we will try and unpack it. And hopefully if uh, the Lord listened to Christian Dennett's prayer, he prayed for clarity and brevity, and I pray that he would have heard that prayer, and therefore we will have time to discuss some things at the end. So here is the outline, and it's there in your handouts. So if you didn't uh, find a handout, please raise your hand. There are handouts everywhere. The first thing is, what is worship? Why should we worship? And how should we worship? And all of that comes under the umbrella as the fact that worship is both a means and an end. It's a means to making much of God, which is really what it means to glorify God, but it's also an end because the end result is that we become like what or who we worship, that we become godly. We don't become gods, but we become godly, which in the biblical language is to become more like Christ. So most of you, I hope, or all of you are here because you want to grow to become like Christ. If you want to know what God's will is, there is only one will that God has for us, which is the overarching goal that we might be made like unto his son. And that is what this whole class is about. And worship is then a means and an end. So let me take you back to a time in 1924. It was the day before the Olympics. And Harold Abrahams was being interviewed by a reporter and asked about what he hoped for. And this is what he said, in an hour, I need to go out there and then I will look at this corridor, which is four feet wide, and I have 10 lonely seconds in which to prove my existence. At the same time, someone else was interviewing Eric Little, and they asked him, and it was actually his sister Jenny, he said, Eric, what are you doing here? You were supposed to go to China. And he said this, I, Jenny, the Lord made me for China, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. What was the difference between these two is what we are talking about. Because the one was running to find his identity in the running, the one had already found his identity in Christ, and therefore he could live all of life as his worship to God. It might come as a news to you that there aren't two kinds of people in the world, those who worship and those who do not worship. There are only two kinds of people in the world, those who worship the true and living God and those who worship creation. So let's look at what is worship. So a brief summary, and we'll unpack it. Worship is the act of ascribing ultimate value or worth to someone or something. That's the first part of the definition. You're ascribing value, ultimate value to someone or something from which you and I get our identity, our meaning, and our purpose. But that's not all. 
this act of ascribing ultimate value from which we get our identity, our meaning and our purpose is life transforming. It engages our entire self, our emotions, our will and our intellect and our reason. It's the act of ascribing ultimate value to someone or something from where you and I get identity, meaning and purpose that is life transforming. It engages our entire being, our emotions and will and our reason. We will unpack it as time goes on, but for now hold on to that definition because there is nowhere in the Bible that worship is actually defined and we will see that there are different words used for worship which describes what we just kind of put it in words that we can understand. So why should we worship? And I'm kind of going over it in a brief way and then unpacking it. Why should we worship? Well, simple. We already told you and reminded myself that we are already worshippers. The only difference is who is the object or what is the object of our worship. The second reason is that true worship, if it's not involving the true and living God, will always leave us empty. Did you know that the number one sin in the Bible is idolatry? What do you think of when you hear the word idols? Perhaps you think of my country of my birth. Actual physical idols or a place where they worship a lot of physical idols like even Thailand or Sri Lanka or anywhere. But the fact is that if you look at the New Testament, you remember John's Gospel was written so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ and believing you might have life to him. Well, John wrote a second gospel, which was for Christians, you and I, who have come to know the risen Christ, and we, knew, we know it as the epistle of John, and, or first John, as we would call it, one John. You remember he talks about, how can you know you are a child of God? Do you remember the last verse in that epistle? It's very intriguing. This is how it ends, and you can verify it, which you should. Be like the Berians. If what I say is not in the Bible, then I shouldn't come back. So... John, 1 John, or 1 John, the last verse is like this. Little children, keep yourself from idols. Idolatry is the number one sin in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And it usually in the New Testament, you don't have that word idolatry. Instead, it is usually strong desire or desire which has been disordered. So we are all desiring something. What is it which we desire? Is it the living God or is it a creation? So because we are already worshipping someone or something we should worship, because everything else except the worship of the true and living God will leave us enslaved and empty, and because one of the chief ways in which the Holy Spirit transforms us into the image of Christ is to make us desire Christ. You remember that Westminster Confession begins with that question, what is the chief end of man? Which is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. But if you look at where it's taken from, it's taken from Psalm 16. Because I have said the Lord always before me, there are pleasures at his hand forevermore. I like John Piper's twist on that, where he says, the chief end of man is to enjoy, know God by, or glorify God, or make much of God by enjoying him. In other words, true pleasure is where we find we please God. And we'll unpack that if we have time. But basically, the transforming power of the Holy Spirit is that he transforms our desires. Our growth in Christ is primarily a growth in transformation of our desires so that we begin to desire what God desires and we begin to desire what Christ desires. Here's the one question if you want to know whether this is part of the transformation process. Did it work for Christ? 
and it did, right? My meat is to do the will of him who sent me. I do always those things which please him. So why should we worship? Because we're already worshipping someone or something, because everything else except the worship of the true and living God will leave us enslaved, and because the transformation of our heart is how the Lord transforms our behavior. What we believe shapes what we behave as. And lastly, how should we worship? First and foremost, in communion. No true worship is possible before we know Jesus as Lord and Savior. Only those who truly know him as Lord and Savior can truly worship him. Otherwise, it is false worship. We must be born again and be found in him. We must be in community. In communion and community, the gospel and salvation is personal, but it's never private. We only know God fully when we worship in community, and we can unpack that later. And then the third way is that we worship him in spirit. And that doesn't mean we have spiritual experiences of an ecstatic or mystical kind. It means that only the spirit can regenerate us, only the spirit can direct us, and only the spirit can make us cry, Abba, Father. And that expresses our adoration of God. We must worship him in spirit. We cannot say, I think God is like. While the knowledge of God is revealed to us, it's only revealed to us in the Bible. We cannot make God into our own image, like Voltaire said, right? In the beginning, God created man in his image, and ever since then, man has tried to return the favor. But God has not given us that option. He is, re he is revealed to us in his word, and we must worship God as he has prescribed in truth. And lastly, we have to know that we cannot do worship as a means of earning salvation. We cannot broker grace. Grace, by definition, is freely given to sinners who deserve nothing but eternal condemnation. But in Christ, God has shown us grace so that what we deserve we did not get, which is eternal condemnation, and what we did deserve was only eternal condemnation, but we got amazing grace. So we don't want to transform worship into a work. So that's kind of the overview, because if we rest in the finished work of Christ, then we will come to him in knowing that nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. And so then we can pray with the psalmist, search me, O God, and know my heart, and see if there's any wicked way in me and lead me, in the way everlasting, which should be our prayer every day because we are not asking for information, but we want transformation. When we began medical school back in the Stone Age, we used to have to read a lot of anatomy. We were reading and memorizing. For instance, they would ask us to say, trace the path of the radial nerve from where it starts to where it ends. We got bored of it and it was taxing until we came to the clerkship years, where we would actually see patients who had paralysis of the radial nerve, and then it really mattered what did the radial nerve do when it started and where it goes, which muscle it supplies. So some of the classes we will go through will involve anatomy, telling what it is, but it's also going to involve applied anatomy, what, it hap what happens if it doesn't happen as it's supposed to be. So if I had to tell you what would be the opposite of true worship, you already know the answer that is idolatry. So we will unpack some of idolatry. We don't have the time, as I said, the problem with sometimes uh, a naive speaker like me is that we want to teach the entire Bible in 
40 minutes, but that's not possible. So all I hope to do is to put some pebbles in your shoe, which will make you think, and hopefully the Lord is going to use that to transform our thinking, because when he transforms our thinking, he renews our mind. So what is worship? We're going to start by unpacking it. You have it in your goals, in your notes, that Thomas Watson, the Puritan, defined it in four terms. It is adoration, which means looking at who God is and being awed. That is the proper word, use of the word awe, at who he is. But it's also appreciating the fact that God is not man become better. He is entirely unique, and there is no one like him. It is to acknowledge that he alone is worthy of our reverence and worship. It is also involving our affections, the old Puritan term for our emotions. It also finally involves subjection, and that is not to say that God is like a Santa Claus beating us down so that we will be nice and not naughty, but it is to respond to him saying, this great God is worthy of my affection. He is also the one that I will submit myself to. We enter the kingdom by subjection because, you know, the word of God says, if you confess with your mouth that Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved, Romans 10, 9. But it's also how we live in the kingdom. Let this mind be in you which was in Christ Jesus, who though he existed in the form of God, emptied himself. So, God in Christ makes worship possible. True worship, and I mean worship, from now on we're going to talk about true worship, that is the worship of the living God. And the spiritual disciplines are a means of growing in godliness that find their place in a life which is completely consecrated to God. We cannot do that unless we are awed by God, A-W-E-D. And that's why Romans 12:1, when it says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, which is your spiritual worship. What the writer there is saying is that what we need is to be so overwhelmed with God's character and who he is that we willingly give all of ourselves to him. Now, here is the applied anatomy or applied teaching. Worship, said Paul David Tripp, is first my identity before it becomes my activity. The most important worship that I do is then not on a Sunday, but it's Monday through Saturday. And we are all worshippers. Every human being is living for something or someone. And being a worshipper means that I attach my identity, my meaning, and my purpose to something. I can either get it vertically from the creator, or I can get it horizontally from, my cre from the creation. What I worship shapes my life. And what I worship rules my heart. And what is in my heart will shape my words and my action. The problem with what happened in the fall was not merely that we lost our relationship, but sin went deeper. It disordered our desires. Before we wanted fellowship with God and to please him, but now we want no fellowship with God. We don't want to please him. We wanted to have it our way and not just at Burger King. Listen to this from the words of David Foster Wallace as he spoke to the graduating class uh, now about 15, 16 years ago. The compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never feel you have enough. Worship your body and beauty 
and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. And listen to this. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is they are unconscious. They are default settings. In other words, we are born worshipping me, myself, I, my pleasure, what I want, what I do, and not just about anything to do with God. But when Christ's love becomes our identity, you know, today, this month is everywhere you see pride and pride. Listen how Christ transforms us. There is some truth that we should take pride in our identity. But what is your identity? If you had to, if you were woken up in the middle of the night and asked, who are you? When Christ's love becomes our identity, when we know that we are his by faith in his finished work on the cross, he doesn't efface or demote every other identity, but he properly orders them. In other words, we can only truly love other things in the way God designed us if we are loved by Christ and we form our identity in him. The greatest pride is who you and I are in Christ as his child, protected, loved. And if that is your identity, that's the true gospel. Only in Christ do I not have to earn my identity. It's not in my proclivities, it's not in my possessions, but it is in who Christ is and what he has done for me, that I am his child and that is my greatest happiness. He loves me for myself and he loves me not for my performance, he loves me for who I am. That's an identity that really does not exclude. There is no identity that you and I will find apart from Christ, which is so life-transforming. Now, some of us may say, well, I understand what you're saying, Dan, that we should get our identity vertically, but how do you do that? I'm going to talk about how you don't do that, how I don't do that, and then the reaction to that will obviously be, this is not what we want to do. Listen to what someone wrote, which I think always I go back to. It's so convicting. Worship is our response to what we value most. That's just another way of saying we attach our identity, meaning, and purpose. As a result, worship fuels our actions, becoming the driving force of all that you and I do. Some of us attend the church at the corner, professing to worship the true and living God above all. Others who rarely darken the church doors would say worship isn't a part of their lives because they aren't quote-unquote religious. But everybody has an altar, and every altar has a throne. So how do you and I know where and what you worship? It's easy. Simply follow the trail of your time, your affection, your energy, your money, and your allegiance. At the end of the trail, you'll find a throne And whatever or whoever is on that throne is what's of highest value to you. On that throne is what you worship. Sure, not too many of us walk around saying, I worship myself. I worship my job. I worship this pleasure. I worship her. I worship my body. I worship me. But the trail never lies. We may say we value this thing or that thing more than any other, but the volume of our actions speaks louder than our words. In the end, our worship is more about what we do 
than what we say. Worship is first my identity before it's my activity. So some of you say, nah, I'm not like that at all. Listen to this, Christian idolatry is more subtle than an outright abandonment of Christ. We may simply feel that Christ is not enough. We feel Christ is enough for eternal life, but will he be enough for my job, my marriage, my performance, my pleasure? So just to be safe, we spread our trust between the true God and various counterfeits or idols. It's like having a diversified stock portfolio, right? It doesn't seem so bad because Christ is not abandoned, but our heart has already shifted its allegiance. Listen to this definition of worship and see if that can resonate with us. Worship is the submission of all of our nature to God. It's the quickening of our conscience by His holiness, the nourishment of our souls by His truth, our mind with His truth, the purifying of our imagination by His beauty, the opening of our heart to His love, and the surrender of our will to His purpose. And all that is gathered up in adoration. So what do you and I really worship? Because we are worshiping something. Our firmware, to use geek terms, is written in worship code. And when the Lord invades our life, He transforms it. He writes a new code. So why should we worship? Because He's our creator. Because He's our redeemer. The 24 elders in Revelations 4 fall down before Him and they cast their crowns and they sing, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. But not only has He created us, our God has redeemed us, that is, to get out of the market, the slave market of sin and of death, and redeemed us by paying the price. And so they sing a new song in Revelations 5, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seal, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And the four living creatures said, Amen. So we worship God because first he's our creator and secondly he's our redeemer. And God is on a mission to save sinners through the cross. And the theme of our missions is found in worship. In the women at the well, that episode, you remember, Jesus talks about what true worship is. And he says that the father is seeking true worshipers. He is the really seeker-sensitive person. And so when we look at the Bible, it is a drama of false worship. It began in the Garden of Eden and everywhere you see people making disastrous choices because of who you choose to worship. When we define our identity horizontally, it means when those things are taken away, then we do not have any place to stand on. Here is the applied anatomy. Knowledge of God as creator is fundamental to understanding creation. And knowledge of God as our creator, our redeemer, and our sovereign is important. So how do you and I know whether we worship the true and living God or we worship idols. Let me ask you to think about three hot diagnostic questions. When God interacts with human beings who are sinning, they, it usually starts with questions like, Adam, where are you? God, get a GPS. No. 
He knew exactly where Adam was, but he wanted Adam to know where he was in relationship to where God was. The number one question is, am I willing to sin to get it? Has something become so important to me? Is it wrong to be having a desire to get married? Sure. But what happens when that desire is the one which drives us? Somehow I must get married. Is it long, wrong to have children? Sure. But what happens if children become the trophy? They make very poor, bad trophies. Is it wrong to be great on the job? Sure, no. But is it something which drives us so that we exclude everything else? We don't have time. That really is our waking moment. That's why the Puritans called idols inordinate affections. A good thing becomes a bad thing when it becomes a God thing. Am I willing to sin to get it? I must have it. The problem is when we lose a good thing, we may feel disappointed. When we lose an idol, it devastates us. That's why you hear people saying, I'll be crushed if my boyfriend or my wife leaves me, whatever. We have replaced the worship of the true and living God by worshipping a counterfeit or idols when we are willing to sin to get it. Second question, am I willing to sin if I think I'm going to lose it? It's a hard question. What is it that makes me do this? Has something in creation become higher? The last question, do I run to it for refuge instead of turning to God? What's your response to Harold Abrams? Do better? Go for it, man. Follow your heart. It's going to leave us empty. Or are you going to be like Eric Little saying, God made me to run, but he also made me for China. When I run, I feel his pressure. That's why Tim Keller, on teaching on this, he says this very important thing. Abrams could never rest, and he had to run to find rest, but he never found it. Little already had found his rest, so even when he ran, he was never exhausted because he was running for God's pleasure. So ask yourself... Ask myself what that question is. How should we worship? Well, I told you there are three. There's no definition of worship which is actually given in the Bible, but the words that are used for worship hint at it or actually give us clues to it. The first word is homage. And that is, <clears throat> that is you make much of God. God is on your mind all the time. What we think of God shapes how we live our lives. When a good thing happens, say, let's go to the Lord and thank you. Not unto us, not unto us, Lord but unto your name be glory. When a bad thing, quote-unquote, happens, we say, Lord, you are in heaven, you do what you please, and all things work together for good to those that love God. How can I become more like Christ through this, Lord? So we make much of God. It is, to, it is a desire to acknowledge him as king because he's majestic. And how do we know it? Only through his word. We know doctrine, which is who God is and what he requires of us. And the central question that is answered in this, how can sinful man be reconciled to a holy God? The answer is through Christ. So we know doctrine because we want to know God. We have a desire to know God. We want to know God and become like him. That's a desire. But for that, we need to have a duty that makes us want to do the spiritual disciplines, not as a means to broker grace. We read the Bible not like I used to do, to make sure, Lord, I've given you 10 chapters today, you make, better make sure that I graduate at the top of my class. No. We want to know him because the knowledge of God is, number one, beyond our intuitive radar. We cannot know him. There is enough in creation to condemn me, but not enough in creation to save me. For that, I need the special revelation. 
Only in the word of God do I know Christ, the written word. So when we have a duty to please and desire God, then we discipline ourselves to say, I'm going to read my word today, not because I'm going to become better in terms of earning browning points, because that's how I know my Savior. You don't have to tell two lovers to spend more time with each other. In fact, you have to tell them, hey, don't keep on spending time with each other. And if you truly love Jesus, if I truly love Jesus, I would want to read because it speaks of my lover. We also delight because that's where we meet him in his word. We can't wait to meet him. And all that leads to a life of devotion, which is godliness, because what we worship transforms us. And that leads to a life of praise, which is doxology. So there is service involved. That's the second word which the Bible uses and which means obedience. Remember the call to worship in Psalm 95 involved obedience. How do we know that we have truly been transformed as we trust and obey for there is no other way. And that means we are willing to trust him even though we don't know the why just because God said so. He's worthy of trusting. And not only that, we are reverential, meaning we are in awe. We have the fear of God. You remember in Psalm 130, as the psalmist says, with you there is forgiveness, therefore you are to be feared. That doesn't make sense. You say that God will forgive, then why should I fear him? That's because when we are not saved, we have a servile fear of God, a fear of God which is afraid of punishment, a fear of God which says, will God ever accept me? But a child of God now has a different kind of fear. It is the fear which results from knowing who God is as my father and being lost in wonder that I, who was unworthy, have now been accepted in the beloved. And we say with the Song of Solomon, he brought me to his banqueting table and his banner over me is love. How do we, what are the acceptable means of worship? We already mentioned that. <clears throat> there is the general revelation in creation. The heavens declare the glory of God. But creation is not enough to show everything that God has for us as human beings to enter into a relationship. That's why we need the special revelation. We look into his word and God insists that we approach him through his word. The written word reveals to us the living word and that's why we pray beyond the sacred pages. We seek you, Lord. Show me myself. Show me my sin. Show me my savior. Because God has ultimately revealed himself supremely in his son Jesus Christ. As the writer to the Hebrews points out long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, which means after everything has ended, we are in the last days when Christ came. He has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed to be the heir of all things. No one has seen God at any time, writes John in John 1. But only God, who is at the father's side, he has made him known. Jesus Christ is thus at the center of New Testament thinking about worship. We talked about how God has revealed himself in his creation and Jesus Christ, and we do not engage and engage with God and draw near to him by our own merit. How do we worship him? Again, there's a lot of confusion when Jesus said to the woman at the well in John 4, the hour is coming when true worshipers will worship the Lord in spirit and truth. And that is not to talk about a mystical experience. What it means is that the Spirit of God initiates the act of regeneration to which we respond in faith and repentance so that now we accept who Jesus is and what he has done for us. So there is a subjective element 
to the objective truth that Jesus died on the cross and was risen and has ascended, in the subjective element I say he died for me and therefore I am now forgiven in him and that is the spirit regenerated. But it's based on the truth. If you look at Psalm 95, how does he say, for he is our God? That's because he relies on the word of God to teach him who God is. So we can't worship a God of our own making. Like Luther said, make God into a wax nose. Unless we are born of the spirit, we cannot worship God. Paul writing to the Corinthian church said, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the spirit of God says Jesus is accursed and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. So we walk through what it is that is worship as the Bible defines true worship. How do we understand worship, the means of acceptable worship? And then we will talk before we finish with concluding thoughts about how do we worship through the spiritual discipline. First of all, worship is individual. We already hinted upon it that we worship, we enter the sanctuary through Christ. There is no true worship of the living God without knowing Christ as Lord and Savior. And that means it is spirit begun. And once we know, we continually offer up ourselves as Romans 12.1 by the mercies of God in view of all that has been written about, present your bodies as living sacrifices, which, is means, which means, Lord, here am I, send me. That doesn't mean, here am I, send me to go to China as a missionary, but it just means that all of life is lived before the face of God, for the glory of God, that people who see us may see Christ in us, the hope of glory. But it's not individual. All the spiritual disciplines are to be done individually, but also corporately. So we read the Bible because we want to know Christ. We pray because we want to know Christ. We sing because we want to know Christ, but we also do it corporately. Our corporate worship should be fueling our individual worship. The writer of the Hebrews reminds us, let us draw near and consider one another to stir and to love good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. So Paul's way of saying that we worship together is that when we come together, we sing psalms, we remind ourselves of who God is, what he has done. We also encourage one another by praying for one another. We also encourage one another by reminding ourselves of the Bible words that God has given to us. Why do we need to do that? Because if you are like me, I suffer from constant identity amnesia. My functional theology can be vastly removed from my confessional theology. What I say I believe in and sing about on Sunday may really not be what I live out on Mondays through Saturday. That's why I need constant reminders from my brother and sisters in Christ who speak the truth to me in love. And that's also why we cannot engage exclusively through a TV broadcast or a radio broadcast when we worship together. God commands us through his word to assemble with other believers for the purpose of approaching God with other Christians and for mutual edification. So how should we worship? We worship individually. We worship corporately. And we worship to encourage one another, to edify one another, and also to remind ourselves who God is and what he has done for us. So before we close, again, a reminder that worship is both an end and a means. Worship is first my identity before it is an activity. And it's not that I belong to a group of worshippers and there are other people who are not worshippers. It is a means because that's the way we grow in Christ-likeness, which is the purpose of this class. 
it's an end because the end is to make much of God, which is the same as saying you want to glorify God. To glorify God is to give the right opinion of God. Someone said that growth in Christ is like progressively becoming luminous. Everything that we do will either make God appear brighter or put a shadow over the glory of God. Sanctification is the process of growing more and more luminous. We become like what we worship. Romans 1 outlines that the fact that we were in sin means that two things happened. One is we did not give God the worship that was due to him and we were not thankful. So consider the object of our worship, God who is our creator and our redeemer and what he has done for us graciously in Christ. We read God's word and pray that the spirit would stir our hearts with the truth, worshiping in spirit and truth. We allow scripture, prayer, song, and our relationship with other Christians to encourage us in our worship. And all that is a foretaste of heaven when we will gather around the throne and worship with every tribe and tongue and nation that Christ is Lord. Now, how do we do that? It's kind of like asking me to write what Shakespeare wrote, Hamlet. I can do it. I'm not a Shakespeare. Or showing me something like Van Gogh, you know, painted and saying, can you draw that? I can't do that. But if the genius of Shakespeare could come and live inside me, I could write it. If the genius of Van Gogh could come and live inside me, I could paint it. And that's what Christ does for us, that through his spirit, he says, I will come and make my abode with you. And he transforms us so that he lives his life through me. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And like Luther said, the special nature of that verse is in the personal pronoun. Have you come to know this Christ as Savior and Lord? And if you have, have you begun to grow so that you seek him that you want him, that your desire is for him. And then we will say with the psalmist, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And the prohibitory thou shalt not, now in Christ has become the promissory, because he who began a good work will complete it. So I'm going to stop here. That's a lot of information, but hopefully those who have been pebbles in the shoe, and then I'm going to direct your attention to some of the questions that I have. And one question that I put at the beginning of it is simply this, ask yourself, what really makes me happy? Here's an even simpler one. You know, we ask ourselves, how was your day? And we say, yeah, it was great. Maybe the follow-up question should be, why? Is it because, like me, everybody spoke well of me and I didn't, and nobody got on my nerves? So, I worship, I'm actually worshipping opinion of others, and so on. So let me stop here and then throw open questions, comments, and uh, also if you want to attack any of the questions also, but look at those three hard diagnostic questions. So questions, and I will repeat the question, not because I want to be rude, but because for the sake of the recording. So, and if I can't answer, I'm sure my brothers in Christ here are well suited to answer that question. Sure.
Good. For the sake of the recording, uh, Daniel Hastings wants to know why is it throughout the Bible we have people wanting to confine worship to a place or an activity rather than how we think and do. Uh, am I phrasing it right? Um, well, I think, first of all, it is written into our worship firmware that we are to, firmware that we want to worship. That much is clear. But God did prescribe in the Old Testament ways that a sinful man can approach a holy God. So yes, there was a place. Yes, God is everywhere, but in a special way, he was present with his people in the tabernacle when they met with him. Once a year, the Holy Spirit would go into the Holy of Holies. Now, we know that Christ has fulfilled all those types and shadows in the Old Testament, so there is no set place. And yet, in Psalm 95, we say, let us come before him into his presence. Does that mean that there is something in the presence of other believers that is not present in the otherwise private worship? Yes. Uh, C.S. Lewis spoke about this very nicely. You know, he was meeting with a couple of other friends, J.R.R. Tolkien, you know, Charles and Ronald, and they used to meet. And then Ronald dies, and then C.S. Lewis, Jack, is thinking, well, now that Ronald has died, I'm going to have more of Charles to myself. But that wasn't happening because there were things in Charles which only Ronald could reveal and bring out. So when we come together as a corporate body, I think one thing we find is there is something that fills the temple of God, which is we don't enter a building, but we don't enter a church building. The church enters the building every Sunday morning. So yes, there is one aspect that God has prescribed that we ought to come together because there is a special thing about his presence that happens. Same thing during the Lord's Supper. But it's also for people who control, who want to control and say, if there's something in creation, then we can have control over it. So that's why man prescribed ways of worship are there, whether it's in Hinduism or whether it is in Eastern mysticism or anything else. It is a seeking after something in creation which we can control and therefore we can then make it do what we want. So for the worshipper who is worshipping the true and living God, yes, there is a prescription that we come together for those reasons that we talked about, that is to encourage one another, to edify one another, but it's also that we come into his presence and that happens in a special way when that gathering of saints happens. But for the unbeliever, it is that seeking after something that in creation which will give him or her identity. And that would be one reason why I would say everybody is worshipping something. Does that help? The work of God's spirit is primarily inside the heart. You remember in that movie, and I haven't seen that movie, and please don't write to me that, well, I shouldn't be, but I, I didn't see. Because in that movie, there was a special mirror which was called Erised. It was a children's movie. It doesn't, make, it doesn't uh, take you too much to say, Erised is what? Desire spelt backwards. So this guy goes and looks into the mirror, and he sees his mom and dad, and he's shocked because his mom and dad died in infancy. And here they are telling him how good he is and what a talented guy he is. So he immediately runs over to his friend and says, hey, hey, come and see my mom and dad. But when he looks into the mirror, he hears his coach saying, wow, you did really play a good game. You know what that mirror is saying? 
that the mirror we look into in creation is what we desire. But the mirror of God's word tells you and me, you are a sinner and your only hope is in Christ because he paid the price for you. And when we look into the mirror of God's word, we not only see ourselves, but we see who God is. That's why when we look at this whole thing about worship and idolatry, we don't want to turn it to a navel-gazing experiment. We want it to be for one look at ourselves. We want to look at Christ who paid it all and whose perfection is seen in the mirror of God's word. And we say, Lord, transform me that I might be made into our image. So when we walk up to the mirror every day, we only have to walk up to the mirror every day to see a sinner. But in the brokenness of our lives because of sin, it's like a hall of mirrors in an amusement park. It gives us distorted versions of who we are, whether our performance, even good things like parental approval, is it good? But if that's what controls us, or being good at games, is that a good thing? Yes. So the mirror of God's word reveals to us who we really are, but doesn't leave us there. It transforms our thinking to saying, but Christ, but Christ. And that's where our refuge is. That's why we sing, I don't stand on anything else which is sinking sand, but in Christ alone is my hope. Any other? Yes, go ahead, Matt. Uh, so I guess this is a clarifying question. Sure. Yes. Yes, good. Uh, good question, Matt. Yes, so that's uh, what Matt is asking for the purpose of the recording is how do you put the category of, say, you're doing something which is a hobby or a work as opposed to things like reading the Bible and praying, which we normally associate with worship. Am I restating it? Well, to go back to our first definition of worship, worship is first my identity before my activity. So if all of life is to be lived before God, what the old term was quorum Deo, then when we come in our privacy to, or in our private moments to read the Bible, we are again living before the face of God and asking God to reveal himself to us through our scripture. And then we go out and live before the face of God in the light of scripture. So that's why if you look at it, I didn't have the time to go into it, what begins with adoration ends with benediction in a, in a service, which is the progress of the gospel is always first adoration, who God is. In light of that, we realize who we are, so we confess. And then God responds to us in his word that this is who Christ is, so we respond with thanksgiving. And then the word is given to us, therefore go out and do this. So the benediction then sends us out. So how do we live that is work, then worship? Yes. Because whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, live to the glory of God. So think of it like this. The athlete who runs now as a Christian is going to run as unto the glory of God. And he's going to say, by God's grace I have done. 
this. I'm running for Christ and not for Scotland. And one person who was a used car salesman put it this way. Before Christ, I used to sell cars. After Christ, I help people. That's the difference. As a, as a physician, for instance, I can say, wow, I'm just getting these good feedback from the patients. Isn't it great? All think well of me. Or as a Christian, I can say, what a great privilege it is to partner with God in his work of healing people and human flourishing. If you're a businessman, you can say how good it is to do this as a glory to God. Christ in us, the hope of glory. So we think of worship sometimes as narrowly defined as reading the Bible, praying, and so should be. But it's a means to an end, and that end is to live before the face of God for the glory of God. So there is no difference if we know what true worship is between sacred and secular because everything is sacred. Does that help? So my worship also happens when I go to work. So hopefully I'm not getting up on Monday morning saying, good Lord, it's morning. Rather saying, good morning, Lord, it's Monday. Good questions. Anything, anything else? We have, let's see, about five minutes left or less. Of course, man. So, is there any particular order to those things? Like, because it's, it's worship and truth, so do you have to have all the, the ultimate ends informed by like, scripture per se? Mm-hmm. So, um, I'm thinking particularly of people who, you know, we're saying we want to avoid mystical or ecstatic experiences. Right. We're not counting that as the act of worship. Mm-hmm. Right. You're right. I'm going to rephrase and hopefully clarify Matt's question. Is saying, does experience count for a worship activity? So the Bible always says in John, um, we see the record of the high priestly prayer of Jesus. He says, sanctify them through your word. Thy word is truth. So experience may or may not prove anything. We don't discount experience, but experience does not prove truth. It must be tested by the word of God. So whether I feel that Christ is close to me or not is not the criterion for knowing whether I truly worshipped or not. It is spirit and in truth. And by spirit, we mean spirit-initiated, spirit-governed. And so the spirit is not the spirit of confusion. So when people say, I had a great experience today as I did this, activated this, we can say, yes, that is good. But what did you know about God? For instance, I can be an atheist and go and look at the great sunset and say, wow, what a great sunset. But as a Christian, I'm going to say, wow, what a great God who has, met this, who has made this sunset. That's the transforming thing. Did that, and did that looking at that particular act bring us some view of God which made God big or which did it make creation big? That's the same way with going to church. When we come away from hearing the church, are we going to say, what a great sermon and what a great preacher or are we going to say what a great God and isn't it wonderful that today we have met him in his word praise be to God so you're right we don't want to discount experiences but because our wills and our emotions are so fickle we don't want to say well I must be not spiritual because I don't feel spiritual half the time on a Sunday I don't feel spiritual if you ask me I don't feel like getting up 
I don't sometimes feel like getting out on the left side of the bed or the right side of the bed, but imagine if you went to work and you told the boss, I don't feel like coming to work today, and he says, follow your heart. Are you going to say, yeah, my mother always told me, follow my dream, so I went back to bed. No. It's a constant battle to bring our will to bear upon our emotions. And so, yes, we don't discount experiences, but we don't test truth by experiences. It's the word, it's the word. It's, you know that line from Winnie the Pooh, where it says, when we don't get the honey, it is to Pooh's house, it is to, I think, one of the house, it is to the Pooh's house we go, or something like that. So, when we are in doubt, it is to the word that we go. What does the word say? What does the word say? And when we go back to the word, we are standing on firm ground. That's what the Lord did. That's why I said, if it didn't work for Christ, it won't work for us. It is written. It is written. It is written. So that's where we build it. And yes, in some day, on some days, some people can attest to it. The Lord gives us that sensory experience where we feel, wow, I feel so loved by God. But it's not in that experience that we determine that God loves us. It is on the cross. The path of change always goes from our heart through the cross where God fully revealed himself. So I agree that the experience, but experience should not trump the truth of God's word. Well, and on that note, I think we might have just one minute for one question or comment. Well, I imagine that we have all been so transformed. Christian, here I would invite to close us in prayer so then God can prepare our hearts for the worship ahead. Brother? Amen.